in relationship to recent events, speaking to the police brutality, the murders that we've all witnessed on social media in such a, a visual and, and transparent way, is that while being jarred, it also shines a light on all, all the systemic challenges and systemic threads of injustice that have permeated over the course of decades and even centuries. And as a design leader, whether it's my clients, teams, or my own teams, I'm hyper aware of the opportunity to actually flex that team to ensure that it's as representative and inclusive of the audience that we're ultimately serving. You are listening to Change Lab Conversations on Transformation and Creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, President of Art Center College of Design. Like the consummate designer he is, Kevin Bethune has iterated his own job description. Kevin's strikingly diverse career path includes stints as a nuclear engineer at Westinghouse Electric, a financial manager at Nike, and strategic design innovator at Boston Consulting Group. All achievements that would stand alone as a high point on most resumes. But Kevin still had goals he'd yet to articulate and accomplish, and as you'll hear through his deeply introspective reflections, Kevin takes his dreams very seriously. So seriously, in fact, that they became the driving force behind his current venture, an innovation think tank called Dreams, Design, and Life. Animated by the idea of bringing a childlike openness and imagination to realizing our highest possibilities, Kevin now leads a multidisciplinary team at Dreams, Design, and Life. There, he uses design innovation tools to help businesses plan for an uncertain future. Kevin is a unicorn even by Silicon Valley standards. He comes to the table bearing a trio of specialized degrees from prestigious institutions, including a Master of Science in Industrial Design from Art Center. And perhaps even more rare and relevant to his success is the kindness, humility, and integrity he brings to every layer of his creative process. Though he has faced his share of obstacles as a person of color, he's prevailed by remaining true to his commitment to connecting people with their dreams and taking the high road in business and in life, all of which we discuss at length in today's episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Bethune. I'd love to start with helping listeners just get an understanding of uh, who you are and your background a little bit and kind of want to quickly go from Detroit to Pasadena or maybe from Detroit to Redondo Beach and uh, take that journey with you and begin from a sense of, you know, who you were as a creative kid, which I think would be really interesting. I know that you stopped off at engineering and business on your way to design where you kind of completed a certain circle. But I'm curious about your own memories of yourself as a child and as, particularly as a creative child. No, thank you for that. Um, I would say during my youth, I, I definitely had a, a creative leaning. I, I drew for hobby all the time. And I think it was also a result of my parents just being naturally creative. I would always see them engaged in things outside of their day-to-day -day work. And so they were very encouraging in terms of allowing us kids to pick up pens and pencils, markers, and, and make things, sketch things. But I would say when it came time to imagining what I would do for my early career, Art and design were sort of abstract notions. You know, my, my parents sacrificed immensely to, you know, prepare their kids, prepare us for, um, you know, path into education and versioning careers. So there was that pull, that kind of natural inclination, and then there was the more practical inclination that your parents were guiding you to follow. And so you found yourself, uh, we'll fast forward now to your college years, you found yourself focused on engineering initially, correct? Correct. So uh, because my inter interests also intersected with mathematics and science, uh, engineering perhaps made the most pragmatic sense. So I decided to pursue mechanical engineering when it came time to you know, picking a school and, and ended up at the University of Notre Dame. And with engineering in particular, was to use your language, the creative superpower active? Do you feel like maybe you brought a different sensibility to your work as an engineer? Uh, Probably um, a bit hazy to look back and feel like that that was happening. I think I was just so caught up with just 
cracking the code of engineering and feeling like I belonged in STEM because not to backtrack too far, but um, when I when I entered Notre Dame, with it being such a jarring difference from my high school education, my public school education, um, it was at a whole nother level. And I remember my freshman advisor at the first sign of my difficulty in the classroom recommending that I perhaps pick a different major, maybe consider liberal arts or business because oh, engineering proved difficult. At the first sign of trouble, that was the advice just to go pick a different major. Hmm. What was behind that? You know, honestly, when I look back, I can't answer for the gentleman, but I just remember feeling immediately insulted. Like I, I was wrestling with the sense of challenge already of just finding my place in a STEM lane that was engineering. Um, but I, I think at that point, convictions really rooted themselves within me to say, I am going to figure this out. And so you did. So you graduate that way, and along the way, then you also decide to add business to your repertoire, which I actually think was probably a creative choice, despite the haziness you claim. So tell us about that choice. Sure. So uh, after Notre Dame, um, of all industries that were looking to recruit students out of college, one industry in particular was facing what I would call a knowledge crisis, and it was the nuclear power generation industry. So the next five years was an incredible runway of product-based experiences, learning how to you know, make things, engineer um, hardware. But I think while that was feeding my engineering curiosities in, a, in a, a major way, a natural curiosity for business arose because I lacked the acumen, I lacked the language of business, and I became more interested in terms of where my career was going. Could I have at least a little bit more license for where that path could take me? And I just realized like there's business stakeholders over these engineering departments guiding like the fate of our careers. How can I have a little bit more license? and learn to understand like what they cared about so that I could be a better agent for uh, change or positive impact for the company. And so that led me to investigate business school ultimately. And so you got your MBA at Carnegie Mellon, correct? Correct. Yeah. I mean, I just want to suggest, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but I want to suggest that your creative spirit was active in making that connection and broadening the horizon, but also creating a different kind of tension between what the engineer demanded and what the business person demanded and how those two fit together seems to me a fundamentally creative choice, but that's just an observation from the outside. Uh, whether or not you'd agree, I don't know. <laughs> I can't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then moving through to um, finding your way to Art Center in graduate school in industrial design, but I, I'd like you to tell the listeners a little bit about that story um, and your time with Nike and particularly with our friend Dwayne Edwards, who's significant figure in this college. We're fortunate enough to award him an honorary doctorate recently, and he's been so significant in helping so many students uh, in important ways. And he's a bit of a hero of Art Center, so it's interesting to connect him up with your experience as well. No, absolutely. And Dwayne's a hero of mine still. Uh, very much lean on him for advice. But it was funny, as I entered the Nike environment post-MBA, I, I started in a business capacity like most business school students coming out of, of the classroom. But because of my engineering background, I was very much a product person that was just looking to really leverage their product background with that new business layer. So I was working a lot with investor relations. I was serving as a primary headquarters interface liaison between business segments and the, the Nike C-level executives. But Nike being the networking culture that it was, it was really easy to just kind of go invite someone for coffee in a different department, a different area, and learn about what they did. And then I started meeting more and more product folks and design and innovation folks. And through some advocates and some mentors along the way, um, there were opportunities to actually engage in stretch assignments or side hustle type work projects, just, just to show those product organizations that I was very passionate about what they were doing, that I had some chops from my, my past that could be helpful. And also, you know, I have this business education where I could maybe be the numbers guy for the, you know, the business person that they didn't have in their department. So those stretch assignments led to an opportunity to come into the product engine of Nike. And that's, that's when I had the great fortune of meeting Dwayne. And Dwayne took a little bit more time to just understand my, my personal story beyond just the title that I was walking into his office with. And... I think also there was some connection as fellow um, black Americans navigating the corporate arena that it was Nike, where he just wanted to understand my story a little bit more. And he saw some of the raw creative work, the drawings I would do for hobby. And he said, you know what? I actually have too many briefs, not enough designers. I'll give you a shot. If you are ready to you know, work for me and with me, I'll mentor you through uh, these briefs that I need some help with. 
you meet me in the mornings, we'll, we'll do our thing, we'll go do our day jobs, and then you do my assignment at night and come back the next morning. So he gave me that runway over the course of a year where we actually brought two shoes to market under the Jordan brand. Uh, they ended up selling pretty well, and, and it just set my creative curiosity of fire going through that process. That's great. That's great. And that eventually led to your decision to go to Art Center, correct? Yeah, it wasn't an easy process, honestly. You know, the work with Dwayne led to other invitations to do some work for different Nike categories, which is awesome. Uh, very grateful for that. But that's, at the same time, the road that was painted for me to be fully pedigreed as a Nike footwear designer, it might have been another 10 to 15 years of side hustle shoe projects before I would be afforded the title and the graces to have that as my formal path. Or I could investigate how to solidify my creative foundation through education and that's when I got really serious about, about school. And can you reflect for us a little bit on your experience of being in design at Art Center and in, in the Grad ID program? Uh, it's interesting because you had the engineering education, you had the business education, and now the design. I'm, I'm just interested, as I imagine a lot of listeners would be, as to the particularities of that experience at Art Center and how at that particular point in your career you moved into a field like that. Yes, um... I would say I remember driving for the first time up up to the Hillside campus. I still remember that. It's like burned into my memory. I knew that this was going to be a steep climb and that I needed to just appreciate the gravity of the of the next two years. And when I got to know the graduate industrial design program curriculum, it felt like a new experiment in and of itself. Because I remember when I was initially looking at schools, the posture of Art Center was very much, you have to come from design to be a part of the graduate programs. At least that was like the perception. It may, I, I may have been incorrect in that, but that, that was at least what I felt whenever I was looking for information. But around the time of my actual application, I noticed the tone had changed to, you know, we're actually widening the aperture. You know, Grad ID is about nurturing a balance between the practicum that is industrial design. And you're going to learn that. You're going to learn the foundations. We're going we're gonna to kick your butt to <laughs> make sure you learn those skills. Uh, but the other side of it is we see you as leaving this program as an agent of, of influence in strategic conversations that could shape companies. Or we see you as a founder of, of another startup. You have that ability if you use these capabilities. So I guess coming through Grad ID, I garnered some sense of confidence that this was leading me to the right place, even though I didn't have a sense of what that next job would be. But looking at the needs of what was brewing in our future and the way the market has been shifting I felt like Grad Idea was giving me the tools, both as a designer foundationally, but also as a creative problem solver to guide conversations that will shape companies. Like that confidence was slowly built over the curriculum. And even before I even finished, there was sort of this weird tension. <laughs> I, I would talk to companies that would come to campus, to grad shows, or I would go you know, leverage my network and go talk to people on my own. And I would say eight times out of 10, most companies would say, you know what, eh, you're kind of this weird hybrid. We don't know what to do with you. We don't know how to slot you into a singular success profile. You can never lead designers because you've never been a designer, you know? <laughs> oh, I see. So what I'm perceiving as an incredible strength that you had the, the trifecta, right, of engineering, business and design, the initial perception from some of these companies was it's too broad a spectrum. It's too broad a spectrum or we don't see you fitting in our rubric and we couldn't confidently hire you because you've never done these things. And what they're really saying is that I had never done it the same way that perhaps they did or done it in a way that maps to the singular nature of each job description that they're hiring for. And, you know, I, I had to I had to swallow that reality, you know, and just try to understand like, OK, but still, the vision of why I went to Art Center in the first place, I still feel it's valid. The way that, that I see the world moving, the way that I see some of the more relevant startups out of Silicon Valley actually working and, and behaving successfully. D. Wayne Edwards, as Kevin has mentioned, played a pivotal role in his decision to pivot to a career in design. D. Wayne has an extraordinary story to tell about his own journey, one we plan to feature on the next season of Change Lab. Until then, just know that D. Wayne is a revered figure in the design world who served as design director of Jordan Brand at Nike before founding Pencil, a footwear design academy in Portland, offering an immersive on-the-job training for aspiring designers.
How you doing? My name is D. Wayne Edwards. I'm the founder of Pencil. This is my 31st year in the footwear industry um, as a designer. Kevin Bethune and I blessed each other's presence together during our time at Nike. Kevin was, you know, the, the, the nice guy that always had a smile on his face, um, always optimistic, polite. We just connected. But behind the nice smile and the pleasant exterior, I think, is a, is a beast. Uh, I, I think there's a hunger behind all of that. And while I was the footwear design director for Jordan, Kevin um, would, would always come over just to hang out and talk. And, and, and one day, you know, he, he shared with me his passion for design. You know, he wanted to, to pursue a career in design. And, and I'm like, well, you know, be careful what you wish for. I'm a huge Bruce Lee fan. And, you know, Bruce Lee has a quote of, you know, if you want to learn how to swim, jump in the water. And so, you know, I, I gave him a project working on the Fusion 8, fusing an Air Force One and an Air Jordan 8. And it was a part of something he was doing in addition to his day job, in addition to being a husband and, and, and a father. Daily, he would come into my office early in the morning at 6 a.m. Before everyone comes in, show me what he's got. We would go over, you know, edits and feedback and, and different kind of collaborative thoughts until the project was finished. To me, that showed his commitment. He made his mind up to do something that few people told him he probably couldn't do. And, you know, I saw that as an opportunity. My whole career has been based on proving people wrong. And so I could completely relate to his passion and his desire to to want to shift gears and really do do something that no one had ever done at Nike, quite honestly. He started his career at Nike in a completely different part of the business. Like you don't transfer into design at Nike. Like you leave design at Nike for other positions, but you don't transfer in. That just doesn't happen. And no one has made that conversion. That's passion and commitment. Not only taking on an additional project, but the commitment of consistently following through and the commitment of being in the office when no one else is in the office that um, impressed me the most. I love the way that he's he's proved people wrong. Um, and sometimes I think we we need haters in our life, man. Um, haters are good for us. They, they motivate us sometimes when we, we can't do it ourselves. Kevin, I heard about you and then I got to meet you and it was it was such a joy to have you around. And I think the background you, you brought and, and the quality of the human being you are uh, just uh, contributed to the Art Center community in amazing ways. And you've been able to tell your story of what happened after graduation and find your way to BCG and, and all the work you did. But I'm going to actually bring you to now to talk about Dreams, Design and Life, your current company. And first of all, actually to ask you a couple of things. One is the mission, and I'm going to quote it for the listeners, to unlock human potential through the creation of empathetic and holistic experiences. And to take that mission statement and this title of your company and for you to talk a little bit about what that title means and how it's connected to that mission ultimately that, I, that I'm quoting here, which is pretty powerful. I appreciate it. Um, I mean, BCG was an amazing runway, right? Um, but as I started wrestling with multidisciplinary opportunities and ways to really leverage design and the problem solving, sometimes when you operate at such a scale and in such high caliber relationships, the motivations might be all over the place. You might have to address different agenda for different industry problems and opportunities, and that's all fine and good. But there were some facets of where I saw design being needed desperately that I wanted to ensure that most of my calories was spent in that arena. And so when I think of like human potential, how do you unlock human potential? Um, a lot of companies, unfortunately, are still playing catch up when it comes to digital. So there might be an appetite to transform digitally or digitize their operations, but talk of like what human beings are going through in, the, in their ecologies and their environments often goes by the wayside for the sake of the ROI behind the digital investment. And 
there's so much for us to learn around like what drives and motivates people in their everyday life. And as I was passing through um, grad ID and learning about philosophies related to flow and pursuit of the optimal human experience, and you know, I'm referencing Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and other thought leaders of that nature, where you, you just realize there's so much to unlock around like what's actually good for human beings in a world that's being driven by so much computation. And I, you know, being a parent, being a father of a 10-year-old son and witnessing how technology affects his life in either good or bad ways, it makes me think about like, how can we design some guide rails to steer the application of this technology to have it service in a more humane and impactful way rather than just satiating someone's economic desires. And we may not even understand or comprehend their agenda. So that's, that's what I mean when I, when I say like what, what is the sort of the early dream that we all have, the purpose that we hopefully can realize in our lives? And, and ideally, it connects to that childhood dream that we had for what we could do in the world. How can we connect that dream, but also appreciate the realities that are happening in our life every day, the, the concrete realities, the, the good, the bad, the, the emotive, the functional, the utilitarian, all, all aspects of our, our life on a concrete basis. And I see design as that broker, that medium in between that can actually bridge the gaps and help people get on their their mission in life. And so that's that's what I look for in the collaborations. Like, can I partner with clients that are like-minded in unlocking human potential, that are like-minded in looking at opportunities systematically and holistically so that we appreciate all the human beings that are involved in the ecology that we're working in? I think that's great. And it it actually leads me to ask a kind of burning question for me that I would love to hear you reflect on. I'm so curious because you do use the language of human-centered and human potential so much. And in a way, I'd love to hear you reflect on really how you define human, really. How does bias factor in? Who has voice in this human-centered world who may not? And how do you wrestle with those kinds of large questions that we're dealing with now as a culture and a society with your own kind of sense of focus on the work that you do, if you, if you follow my question? Yes, it's, it's a lot more complicated than just looking at the quote-unquote end user and any business opportunity. And I, I won't proclaim to have a clear answer to that question because I think we're all you know, figuring this out. But I, I do think that we can no longer look at problems, especially problems affecting people, in isolation or through only singular lenses anymore. And I think many of us believe in the, the intersecting Venn diagram across design, strategy, and technology. But um, one thing that Great ID definitely grounded in us was this notion of a respect for the greater ecology surrounding uh, any opportunity that we're investigating. So like, what are the ramifications of our decisions, of our guiding principles on the greater systemic you know, ramifications that might be environment-based, that might be infrastructure-based, society-based, government-based? What are the extending layers of ecology that surround any topic that we're working on? And I think also in relationship to recent events, especially with the the jarring uh, systemic injustices that we saw on camera when I'm speaking to the police brutality, um, the murders that we all witnessed on social media in such a, a visual and, and transparent way, is that while being jarred, it also shines a light on all, all the systemic challenges and systemic threads of injustice that have permeated over the course of decades and even centuries. And if we're going into any system now, now I'm of the belief, at least, that if I go into any systemic conversation around any opportunity, that I'm looking at things through multiple lenses, and I want to be respectful of the history that has informed the context of that opportunity that we're zeroing in on. And as a design leader, whether it's my clients' teams or my own teams, I'm hyper aware of like the opportunity to actually flex that team to ensure that it's as representative and inclusive of the audience that we're ultimately serving. I'm co-creating with the people in the field with them, designing with them, not for them from some ivory tower. Right. I mean, I think it's a great insight. I mean, I think that notion of context is critical. It also kind of challenges our sense of what we mean by empathy, I think, as well, right? I mean, and you've, you talk a lot about that in all these 
different layers of that. Again, a kind of superpower of a designer, as you point out, but it's the client, it's the customer, it's the business purpose, but it's also, as you just pointed out, it's also a design team issue as well, right? And what diversity might mean there in expanding and giving nuance to our definition of what it means to be human and human-centered as well. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think it's easy for a designer to proclaim empathy and do some field works, do some ethnography, and basically then make design decisions. But we don't necessarily remember or go back and understand the trail of like what insight led to an actual product decision that informed like how ethical, sustainable, or thoughtful that overarching outcome ended up turning into. Like the accountability trail, unfortunately, isn't there for us to go back and say, well, why? Why were those decisions made the way that they were made? What biases, what what irrelevance uh, or ignorance was manifesting in that trail of decisions? I think we need to drive new accountabilities there. When I think about the work at hand and in my relationship with my present clients, we do have hard conversations. And I think that stems from an initial filter of sorts that manifests in the conversations leading up to an actual engagement. It's like, do we have shared values here? Do we have a shared appetite to want to go find who it is we're, we're serving or identify who it is we're not serving and engage them at a human level and ensure that we're holding ourselves accountable to always documenting, codifying, and holding up the guiding principles that tap into the value criteria and the human motivations and behaviors and idiosyncrasies that make us human, right? If we're um, crafting a digital experience, let's say an onboarding flow for a, a new application, are we having a human conversation around like what are we asking of the users in each of these moments? What benefits are we actually giving them so that it's actually a, a two-way street, not a one-way or exploitive street? And I think being bold like that in those conversations is what a beautiful opportunity represents for every design person out there in the field right now. It's a great response, really, Kevin. And part of what what I find inspiring about that response to this difficult question that I've posed is that it it appropriately complicates this question of what is human. And as you say, it holds you accountable as you engage in that conversation. I think, you know, the, the tendency to cartoon is an easy way out and it's not doing justice to this large and very complex and nuanced project that you're trying to move forward. It's humbling when you when you look at the complexity. And I think also as designers, even though we have our methods and we have our approaches and we have our craft that comes with this, some of these behavioral paradigms affecting our humanity, some of that we need different types of experts to, to address those opportunities. So, you know, some of the teams might need a medical doctor. We might need a psychologist. And we, we have to have the humility to identify those gaps and find the right pe people with the right expertise. You talk about design, too, as future seeing. How does that work? I, I guess Gred ID instilled in us this, this requisite DNA around tapping into the key value criteria that drives human behavior. We're all human beings at the end of the day trying to figure out how to leverage uh, technology to do our jobs in a, in a, in a good way. And, but I think some of that value criteria is susceptible to influence. Influence from technology, influence from social behaviors, influence from what the economy is doing, um, political, geopolitical, all, all these influences are constantly impinging on us. Some human value criteria will remain steady from like the dawn of mankind. It's not changing. But some other value criteria perhaps are changing. I mean, think about privacy. You know, 10 years ago, you might not disclose your location, but now we do it every day, every time we download an app. So, you know, our, our value criteria shifts all around. And I think now organizations need to, or institutions even, need to look at uncertainty as a helpful variable that can help us investigate a wide plethora of future opportunities and not just fixate on one consensus of what the future is going to do for us or, or, you know, one dystopian sort of sensibility around like what the future is going to portray based on perhaps some of the challenges that we're feeling over this past year. 
that leads right into the sort of the core of what I'm so curious about, and you're a great person to try to address this, and that is we typically think about future seeing as, you know, we're going to put on some kind of magic glasses and be able to see it and then bring it through. But that's not what you're saying. That's not what you're saying. And I don't think that's what you're talking about a designer either. It really has to do with what in my own research has become very clear is that uncertainty can be an incredibly creative place. If you have the tools, the structure, the motivation to enter it and to start making and being creative within it, and it's that process that might open up a, a future seeing. Is that does that resonate? It absolutely does. Uh, resonates completely. I, I view it as, you know, if we're looking five, ten years out, we have the ability to leverage our understanding of trends and insights, market insights, people insights, all the different categories, and imagine how those things intersect, ebb and flow over the course of time. And in five to ten years, you might, as a designer, be able to paint. 10 canvases for a team to consider like what they want to build five to 10 years from now or how their current products should actually evolve and morph to match the needs for those different future landscapes or canvases that we just painted. And imagine all the stories that we can then imagine with those contexts in mind. And, and I think those divergent explorations across different future landscapes um, give us like almost like 10 crystal walls, right? To use our imaginations and fantasy to imagine what could be built then. We, we can also imagine how those explorations inform the things that we do today to better prepare and use that context to prepare for an uncertain future. Right, right. And are these, these days, as we're wrestling with two very major pandemics, at least two, one biological and one social, which has created a great deal of uncertainty on so many levels. But do you see this as a particularly fertile moment in history? For that reason alone, do you engage with this moment that way because of the kind of possibilities, the nuances, the future seeing, the making that can happen at this time of uncertainty where we're all trying to make our way through an awareness of certain kinds of opened up systemic issues, but a way to be creative and to kind of lead with a design sensibility that'll help us navigate at this juncture? No, it's a, it's a really um, heavy question emotionally. And, and let me first say, I, I applaud you and Art Center, the institution, for pivoting as rapidly as, as you were able to, to provide learning modalities to keep the, the momentum of the student experience alive and well, as challenging as it was to go virtual for everyone involved. It's a lot. And personally, in the early weeks and months of COVID, as well as the heightened uh, awakening social injustice pandemic that we've seen, there were weeks where I did not feel creative. I didn't feel well. I needed to like just sit. I couldn't make, I couldn't think, I couldn't you know, problem solve <laughs> as I tried to internalize what was going on. But I think what helps pull, what helped pull me to the other side of that natural funk that you can imagine feeling was remembering like what to be grateful for. So I think a sense of gratitude around like, you know, family's healthy, we're able to function, um, we can connect to the world thanks to digital means. Like what, what do we have to be thankful for? And then trying to remember like with a lot of things that have been taken away from us as we try to respect social distance and these kind of things, these new modalities, is what are we gaining in the process? What, what do we stand to gain? And I, if, I think if anything, to summarize the answer to your question, I think the, the, the recent pandemics have, have, have awakened us to like reevaluating what's important. Like where, do, where are we spending our calories? What are we appreciating, respecting? What are we really delivering sound empathy against? And how are we increasing our understanding to be able to see like the sore spots of this country, of our institutions, of our companies, of our individual lives? Now we're in a position where we can imagine new canvases. Value criteria is accelerating like crazy right now. The change that we would have predicted would have taken years has happened in weeks, months, if not days. So to your earlier point, it's an amazing opportunity for creativity to imagine like what plays out over the next three, five, 10 years. And it's not a crystal ball, but it's let's be creative and diverse to different scenarios that are upon us. And how can we actually revisit old systems, break them down if necessary, rebuild them, reimagine them so that we, we enter a future that is hopefully more you know, protected against pandemics like this, that's more, more, you know, racially in tune with the systemic 
pandemics that have awakened our social consciousness so that we engineer better systems, engineer better institutions, and revitalize the human experience, and not just keep feeding constructs that are damaging for someone else's exploitation. Well said. And given the profoundly injurious nature of a lot of those systems, I'd like to invite you, to whatever extent you're comfortable, to tell us a little bit about your lived experience as, as a Black man navigating his way through this profession, um, uh, through the business world, through Art Center itself, for that matter. We need to learn about that and how you reflect on that and how we might be able to learn from your experience in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, it makes me immediately think of my family and that I'm a descendant from slavery. Both of my parents originated from the South. The stories that they share of the racism that they encountered, um, not to make light of anything that we're seeing today, but some of those stories are unconscionable. My mom was one of many children. Uh, she was two when their house was burned down by white supremacy. You know, or my dad being stopped and held in a police station because he was mistaken for some other perpetrator. Those are the stories I heard growing up. And then also being one of the few uh, black families in predominantly white middle-class neighborhoods, just vaguely remembering stories of the bricks getting thrown through the back windows or shot up with pellet guns or whatever, because or, or having the house sprayed with you know, racial epithets. In Detroit. In the, in the Michigan area. We lived in a couple places in Michigan, but a lot of what I remembered happened in Michigan. Okay. But while those, those moments were few and far between, it also ties to a lot of the covert and subtle stuff that I experienced as a, as a black man navigating ac- academia, navigating ignorance in the classroom, so even down to the, like, the text, the textbooks that I grew up with, where the black history, the black experience was boiled down to a page in the history book things of that nature, or where ignorance, ignorant authors were celebrated in the, in the English class. And you, you just start to feel this pressure of society telling you you're, you're inferior, your views are inferior, your culture, your history is inferior. You know, you get to environments like Notre Dame where the advisor, whether he had racist or ignorant convictions in his heart, for him to basically say that to me to consider another path, at the very first sign of challenge, rather than like, what do you need help with? Again, it makes me question, was that a microaggression against the well-being that I would have in the college environment to immediately count me out from greater paths of success? And, and you know, in corporate America too, it's not easy remembering some of those um, subversive traumas around being sort of labeled in someone's eyes without them even saying it, but you just knew that they didn't have high hopes for your success. Or they're uh, sabotaging you, where you know you ask for their help, but in the team room they're they're basically blaming you for the gap, and they never they never picked up their hands to help. Like so so many incidents of that nature that I can remember, and if anything, I think those moments, as difficult as they were, I go back to my family. It's like they had to overcome so much, and no one ever hears their stories, and even if they do try to hear it. Uh, it's quickly met with a, oh, that was a long time ago. Move on. Lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Move on. Manage your own destiny. Manage your own future. I've had people look at me and wave their hand like, oh, you know, you're, you get this hybrid background, but you're, you're sort of wishy-washy with your career and even hold up their hands and sort of wait, waggle it at me as if I'm unfocused. And it's like, no, I'm surviving. I am used to being told no, or I'm used to being gaslit or I'm used to facing uh, passive aggressiveness and not being told the truth, not being given constructive feedback to guide my path. I'm used to that. And I have to work hard to find those threads of insight and wisdom to lean in on and then channel my energy and taking a step forward despite all that disappointment. I wish no negativity on anyone, even though those things have been thrown at me or I face those headwinds because I remember my family values. They rose above it in more difficult circumstances so must I to help those that come behind me. And there is a, and I'm not, I'm not patting myself on the back in any respect. I'm human. I get angry. I get upset. I probably don't handle my emotions <laughs> in the most perfect ways at all times. But at the same time, I do think there's something to be said for taking a high road. It's not about me feigning victimhood because there are some real challenges, right? That I get that many of my peers don't get. But 
I'm going to take the high road because I know if I put good energy into the world, that's going to be magnetic for someone. I'm going to meet eventually meet someone with like-minded values like your Dwayne Edwards, like you, Lauren, uh, like other f- friends that are tight within my circle that, that want to be helpful, that want to be friends, that want to be support agents. And those, those people have absolutely come and they've come from all races. So again, it goes back to grounding myself in gratitude, the values, and understanding like how do I take the high road at all times? I'm sure there were moments of, and why wouldn't there be, a feeling quite discouraged, maybe even wanting to, I mean, just a very simple kind of amygdala kind of uh, fight or flight response to it. But it's also conceivable and that somebody going through that experience that you describe would also want to redouble their efforts in a certain kind of way, uh, perhaps to prove something. But maybe, uh, I think you talk about it in a more sophisticated way. It wasn't so much to prove as it was to take that high road, to give the dignity to the values and the sensibility that you were raised with, to give dignity to that horrific history by taking that high road and reaching well beyond it. I, I do believe, and, and, and it's not to get, you know, overly philosophical or religious, but I, I do believe in higher callings that are bigger than ourselves. And, you know, whether you read the, the Bible or you read the alchemist or any religious or philosophical te- text, creative text, I do believe in this notion of the universe conspiring, conspiring like based on the energy that you put in. There, there's a, there's almost like a butterfly effect and you put out good energy, good energy is going to come back to you. And you follow through on a curiosity by experimenting and uncovering like what could be, even if 99 out of 100 people are telling you it's not for you. But if you do something and you, you hold up something after that exploration and say, yeah, I actually have something. And then you meet, you know, the one in 10 or the one in 100 person that's saying, yeah, I, I think there is something there. You need to keep scratching. And all of a sudden, you know, the world is moving with you. At least I, at least I felt that. And I do operate... I'm a man of faith. I, I, I definitely have a sense of faith about things. And I, and I believe in that good energy begets good energy. I, I want to give you a little feedback from how I know you and you exude that. And it's very inspiring to the rest of us. And I want you to know that. No, thank you. So, Kevin, I, I think I'd love to take now the conversation to talk about Art Center specifically. And as you're well aware, our students are rightfully calling for some deep change at the college, and they're looking for us to really begin to address issues, um, address systemic injustice in a, in a different kind of way. And we've been doing work, but it's, it hasn't had the kind of urgency or depth or systemic focus, frankly, that it really needs now. And we're all, there's this, I hope, wonderful collective awakening is in response to what our students are saying, both at Art Center and what students are saying across the country and maybe what our whole country is really hopefully talking about now. And I'm just interested in your point of view on that and really how to make that process as, again, dignified and effective and real as possible and how you would think about that as a member of the Art Center community, as, as an opportunity to engage in helping us shape a process so that we can do it. Yes. Um, I think academia in general is undergoing a massive disruption. And of course, the, the two pandemics massively accelerating the, the, the value criteria, the motivations, the the integrity and the resiliency of systems. And I think, I think in some ways we're seeing things snap apart or seeing other areas thrive. And when it comes to art center specifically, I think there's something to be said for education playing a role, like drink, drinking our own Kool-Aid or drinking our own medicine. And honestly, like I, I am no historian. <laughs> I don't know 
every thread of systemic injustice just because I'm a black man with with a lived experience. I'm only one human being, one set of eyes, one finite set of years of experience, right? So I would never claim to understand to know like what a indigenous group would would experience or feel in the in these moments. Like there's so many nuances and complexities, and intersections, and we're not just the color of our skin. Any any one of us, we're, we're mosaics of all these lived experiences, intersectionality, all these values. So it takes a great deal of learning to just understand where everyone is coming from, students to faculty to administrators, and the broader ecology that is the community around Art Center. So I think there's a time for education. I understand and I empathize with the emotions, right? I know there's there's calls for certain things, demands and whatnot. And I think we have to sort of tune ourselves to understand what's going on underneath the the noise. And not to say not to say that any message is invalid, but if we could if we could understand the roots of what's driving those concerns and take an honest step to get ourselves educated and then in a solution-oriented way, work together in the right venues, right? And it can't happen all at once. I think as much as we're calling for these demands, a lot of these issues have taken decades or centuries, right? And we're not going to, as much as I want them to be solved, we're not going to unravel them and fix them in a day, in a year, or even 10 years. And yes, that creates, the, the, the need for patience creates challenge to those students and faculty and, and the community going through the experiences now, like they're getting, you know, perhaps robbed or eroded of their the integrity of their experience as we have imagined it initially. So yes, we need to empathize. We have to have compassion for all those friction points. But again, like we need to treat this as a necessary transformation for the future viability of the college. This is not like touchy feel good stuff. I'm having these same conversations with many of the the organizations I'm connected to in my network. We're talking, you know, small startups to. Fortune 100 Enterprises, we're having constant conversations around these points. And what it comes down to, at least for me, is are you going to wrestle with this much like you would with any other transformation affecting your institution? You know, 10 years ago, it might have been a digital transformation. Let's modernize the classroom or start to get, you know, get online with our offerings. And that, that takes a strategy. There's things you do now. There's things that you invest in for year two, year three. You hold each other accountable. You tie incentives to those metrics. Are we ready to treat our resolution to some of these systemic issues in much the same way? It requires a transformation across many facets and visibility, holding each other accountable, communication, collaboration, the right enablers in place, you know, drawing in other actors with resources to help accelerate our efforts. And, you know, the optimists in me says that we'll get somewhere if we do that. I mean, that's so helpful, Kevin. That makes so much sense. You know, there's a paradox involved and you spoke to it. And it's certainly part of what I think we're experiencing at Art Center that there's an impatience from the student body, really, or from the entire community, actually, and an impatience that I actually applaud. I think, you know, and I, I get it. And yet, as you point out, and also, you know, my wonderful colleague and friend Karen Hoffman, our provost, points out too, we need to be thoughtful, methodical, considerate. We need to move this thing forward over a longer period of time and not simply shoot from the hip. I mean, in a way, if you want to talk about what design can do and how the rigor and discipline that we so deeply value and that we imbue into the education of our students, that that takes time, that takes careful consideration that takes making sure we know the facts and that we are working with a basis of something that's real so that we can affect real change. And it's almost like, you know, you get the impatience, but the seriousness of the issues that's driving the impatience requires a lot of patience. I mean, that's the, the, and and therein lies a paradox that we're working with right now. No, I I totally agree. You could easily snap a limb of a tree if, if you push on the wrong thing. So that, yes, urgency needs to be dealt with with a cohesive strategy, but a cohesive strategy takes time to to, to weave together. So I you know I, I long for the students. I having been a student, I mean, what I can say is that the expense of the journey was daunting, and imagining it before I started my time at Art Center. But again, like the the value for me, it was incredibly there. there. I believed in it through my time there. I've been uh, gracious enough to manifest it, that return, through the course of my career after Art Center. 
and I still believe it to be a, a, a vibrant accelerator for people to, you know, embrace and chase their dreams. Well, thank you for that. It's, um, you know, because the and that comes after that statement, which a statement I totally agree with, and we have a ton of work to do to make this a better institution um, in so many ways. I do hold out hope, though, that we can affect change in the deepest, most rigorous way, not hold on to things just because that's the way we did it, because there's a lot of, again, profoundly injurious outcomes of that that we need to we need to pay attention to. Yeah, it's like... Physician, heal thyself, you know? That's in a way, right? That's right. We, we uh, sometimes get caught up in the realities and we forget that we actually have the medicine. You know, one of the big sound bites ever since I left Art Center was, especially when you're trying to bring the creative process into conference rooms, executive rooms that weren't familiar with it. I'm going to educate you on this, but you got you to trust the process a little bit. Give us some room to create some evidence for you. And, and I guarantee you're going to want more of it. And you're going to give us more at-bats to, to get there. Um, so I, I, I believe we have the medicine. We have the tools. It's, it's to your point, can we use them on ourselves to make this shit better and not, not do it from perhaps the old mental models and philosophical models that it got us to this point today. We have to question everything. Kevin, thank you so much. As I've said publicly, you're not only a man of incredible keen intelligence and creativity, but you have a beautiful heart. And that's always something that's struck me from the day I met you. And it's so evident today, um, all those levels of who you are coming through. And I, I, I really thank you and appreciate deeply your willingness to have this conversation with me. No, it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Always a pleasure to connect with you. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to thank our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. If you like what you've heard and want to hear more of it, please take the time to review and give us a star rating in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.